Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's word. Thank you, Josh. If you would, take another quick moment, and I'd love to pray one more time before we get cracking. Father, thank you for this, uh, this story that's existed among your people for a long, long time. Um, it's, it's intimidating to even try to do a story like this justice because the weight of it and how much it resounds throughout the story of your people is just really incredible, and I feel very unworthy to do that. So uh, I pray that this sermon would be a blessing to all who hear it and even the bum who ends up giving it, and I pray that uh, this would be just a, a blessing and food and nourishment for, for all who, uh, who long for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'll do a quick shake real quick. Last time I preached, there was some uh, popcorn making that happened when I preached, so I want to make sure we're good. All right. It feels good. It feels good. Okay. Cool. Now, I don't generally really ever like to uh, peel back the layers of what sermon preparation looks like. I, I think a lot of this just comes down to my own personal pride. I like to be, uh, if not capable, at least someone who appears to be very capable. So when I say something like, oh, I really struggled with this sermon, it's like, whoa, hold on. No, I want to be effortless in the eyes of the people who get to watch me, which is really arrogant, so I can admit that. But this, this sermon was a rough one for me, and there's a couple reasons. One, this is the story of Moses, who is like personally one of my favorite figures in the Bible, but his story is really dense. There's a lot to go through, and I think that when you try to condense something that's really vast, there's just there's a lot of good stuff that you're going to miss, and I think that there was that fear for me. But there's also just the personal connection that Moses was in many, many ways a black sheep. And we're going to kind of unfold that idea. And I think that for me personally, one of the things that I've experienced through many, many areas of my life is feeling like a black sheep. Uh, in areas of uh, like school and trying to connect with like social clubs. And I mean, I'll even say the first maybe year and a half to two years of being 
right here at Mission Church, I experienced that feeling pretty heavily. And I like to think that saying that is not going to isolate me a ton. You know, our church has been called the island of misfit toys for a reason. I think a lot of us come from this background of, you know, black sheep. So who knows? Let's see. Let's see what this does. But I'll share a story first. Um, when I was a, uh, when I was much younger, I went to Steele Elementary on the east side. Shout out to the Stallions. And, um, and I went there and, you know, I, I obviously I graduated fifth, fifth grade. I was 10 years old. You know, you can imagine that 10-year-olds are still kind of figuring out, like, what it, what it looks like to be a person, to be a human self, and that's only going to continue to grow. You know, you're still kind of formulating your personality, your sense of humor, your quirks, yada, yada. And so the district school that I was supposed to go to was Gridley Middle School. Uh, shout out to the Grizzlies. No? All right, sorry. I, I didn't go there, as I'm going to say. Uh, but no, I tested into a, into a Gates program uh, that had me land at Alice Vale, and I told my parents, I don't want to go there. I don't know anyone there, and I'm not going to have any friends there. And I actually really fought them hard on this, as hard as a 10-year-old can fight, and, uh, and I lost. And I ended up going to Alice Vale, where I didn't know anybody. And... Uh, like, I think that was one of the first times I really experienced this feeling of, like, I am here, but I really don't belong here. Another thing that was just an instant curse for me was that I was very short for most of my life. I'm six foot now. I, I broke average, which is a great feeling. But if you don't remember, like, height is like currency when you're under the age of 13. Like, height is better than money. If you don't have height... You better be funny, and you guys know me. Come on. Um, so I was short, and I had the same tree trunk legs that I still have to this day, which meant I was not fast. I was not good at sports. And for the people who saw me stumbling around about five minutes ago, I'm still not very coordinated. So there was just a strong feeling of, like, I'm here. I don't belong. Friendship's hard. Connecting with people is hard. And, you know, I carried that feeling for a really long time. I'd love to say that I met a pal and everything was great, but it was, it was like seared into me in a sense. Like even when it wasn't the case, it was like I was functioning out of the psychology of someone who intrinsically was not going to belong. And that was, uh, that was rough. And I, I feel the, uh, the scar tissue of that to this day. Um, and I don't think I'm the only one who feels that way. Um, so let's talk about Moses now. The, uh, the, the story of Moses tends to start about two or 300 years after the story of Jacob that Andy walked us through last week. The story of Jacob was the story of this conniving kind of swindler who took the things that he wanted and, you know, sometimes that would land him in trouble, but often he didn't have to pay the consequences for the things that he did. He did have a, like a kind of coming of age incident where he was humbled when he met God, literally wrestled with him. This takes place a couple hundred years after that, though. The story of the Hebrews, the people of Israel, had largely gotten worse. They had, uh, through one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had formed this really healthy relationship with this nearby nation by the name of Egypt. 
A lot of the Hebrews would move to Egypt because they had healthy relationships there. They were welcome. They were hospitable. Over time, though, that, that shifted really drastically. A new pharaoh, the king of Egypt, decided that he was really suspicious of these non-Egyptians who were filling up his land. And he decided that if they were going to be contained and controlled, they had to be put into slavery. And they were. One pharaoh, in fact, was so paranoid that he noticed the growing population of the Hebrews and he made a law across the land that if you, had, if you saw a baby Hebrew being born, you were to check its sex. If it was a girl, you let it live. If it was a boy, it was to be killed. Hundreds, if not thousands, of babies were thrown into the Nile and drowned as a result of this. But not all of these midwives, not all of these mothers would submit to this horrible infant-killing rule. One of those mothers would give birth in secret and hide her baby for as long as she could, which I can't imagine just how difficult it is. I've never had a baby, but I've seen them, and they are loud. And hiding a baby for three months sounds like quite an ordeal. But for three months she did, she hid this little baby until she realized she couldn't anymore. And then she fixed him into a little basket made of reeds, placed him at the bed of the Nile, this long river, and just prayed that God would take care of her little boy. This happens to be by providence, circumstance, whatever, the place where one of Pharaoh's daughters would come to, to do these like ritual cleansing type things. Now, the Egyptians, as you guys could imagine, they didn't believe in the God of Israel. They had a bunch of other gods and customs and their religion was very different. And so they believed that different parts of the Nile were sacred and had religious value. So this young woman sees a crying Hebrew boy at the foot of this river and thinks, this is important. There's something very, very important about this child. And so despite the fact that Hebrew boys were still being killed at that point in time, she had mercy and compassion on this baby and decided, you know what? I'm going to adopt this child as my own. And this boy's name, as you can imagine, is Moses. So interestingly, Moses spends his years learning the culture and the language and the customs of the Egyptians. We can assume that the fact that he was raised in the courts of Egyptian royalty, he probably had the best education maybe in the world at that time. He likely learned from some of the best educators around, and Egypt was a mighty nation. At one point, Moses felt this impulse to visit his people. See, he knew deep down, even though he was surrounded by Egyptians, that he was, actually, he was a Hebrew at heart. And so he felt this impulse to visit his people. He goes out and he sees the hard, brutal labor that his people are subjected to. He sees the way that they're treated. He sees the way that they're beaten. He sees the condition that they're in. And he's filled with this sense of passion and justice. At one moment, he sees an Egyptian who's beating 
a slave brutally. And Moses doesn't say how, kills the man, takes his body, and hides him in the sands of the desert. I love this because, I mean, it's not, it's not great. Not, not pro-murder. Don't write that down. But the Prince of Egypt, if you guys are familiar, and I just kind of assume everyone is because I love that movie so much, there's like the scene when he's like, hey, stop doing that. And the guy's like, what? And then he falls off this like giant tower and dies by accident. It's like, no, Moses like probably stabbed this dude. Like this was not like an accidental tower tumbling. He killed this man very intentionally. And so eventually Moses realized that the people were chatting about what he had done and that the authorities were coming to punish him for his crime. And so he ran into the wilderness. Eventually he found himself among this tribe of nomads who were desert travelers uh, called the Midianites. He made, made good impressions with them, ended up marrying the daughter of the leader of the Midianites, and became a shepherd and a sheep herder for many years for them. And in scripture at this point it says that the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery, and God heard their cries. God was prepared to act, and he would use Moses to break the back of Egypt and free his people from slavery. So the scene that Josh just read for us is this kind of pivotal scene, not just in scripture, but even personally in the life of Moses. He speaks to this burning bush. He sees this crazy thing as he's with his sheep and walks over to it. The voice of God just booms out of this plant. And all of a sudden, he, he realized that he's called to something very special. If we were kind of to take a, a big step back from the story of Moses, we would know that Moses, with some pushback, would agree to lead the people out of Israel, or I'm sorry, out of Egypt. He would have a lot of back and forth discussions with Pharaoh. He would lead the people out. They would cross through the Red Sea. Moses would continue to speak with God. He would get the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and bring and deliver the law to the people. And he would die, a very well-revered prophet. But this was before all of that. This was at a time when Moses' life was really just beaten down with the pain and the hurt of his past experiences. There were a few things that Moses needed to learn, and they were going to happen at this moment before the burning bush. Here's the first. Moses learned that he was a child of God. Now, now that we've kind of walked through the story of Moses, think about the kind of black sheep experience this dude must have had. I mean, currently he's living with the Midianites, a tribe that he doesn't have any connection to. His, his closest relationships are with his wife and his father-in-law, who are very different from him. He knows that he's an outsider in this tribe, but think about what it must have been like for him to be an Egyptian, Think of what it must have been like for him to be the race of the slave in the midst of the slave masters. To have that kind of survivor's guilt. Like I'm just thinking, like, oh, like what, what would it look like to be 
like a single native in the midst of a bunch of colonizers, a single African in the midst of a bunch of slaveholders. Like that was the experience of Moses, an absolute outsider somehow brought into this culture that was not made for him and did not care for him. That was the experience of Moses, a complete outsider. By his own words, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. So Moses needed to learn, who am I, first and foremost? When God first interacts with Moses, I love it, he says, he says his name twice, and then he says, take your shoes off. I love it because uh, we, we, we try to relate that with like how we consider customs in our age, and we think, oh, maybe it's like taking off your hat, like it's a, shy, it's a sign of respect. It's actually not the equivalent of that. Taking off your shoes is not a way of like saying, oh, let me, let me be respectful. I don't want to get dirt on the dirt over there, I guess. In reality, what God was saying was, you're unworthy to be here. Space that I dwell in becomes holy. And you, Moses, are unworthy. So take your shoes off. So the first thing Moses needed to realize was the unworthiness that he had compared to the great holiness of God. But that didn't mean that God was like, all right, you're unworthy, this conversation is over. He makes Moses acknowledge his humanity in the great vastness of the holiness of God, and then he welcomes him inside of it. And then he says, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So right when you think he could be isolating himself from Moses and saying, I'm holy, you're not, there's a line between us, he's also saying, I'm the God of your parents, dude. I'm the God of your bloodline. I'm the God of your last name. You and I, we're on the same team. And Moses is invited to, to join into this identity that he had never known. The thing is, God is not just saying you are a child of God. He's saying you are a child of God in the midst of a family and in the midst of a nation that I'm going to call out of a place of oppression. See, when we think about this black sheep thing, my experience as a former and sometimes present black sheep is I think that it sometimes compels us to fixate on ourselves. We get very inwardly focused and think, well, who am I? Well, what am I? How do I fit into these things? The remedy for that that we can see in this conversation that Moses has with the Most High is you are mine, Moses, but you're also part of something much bigger than yourself. The remedy for not knowing who you are is realizing that you belong to God, but also the family that you're a part of is enormous. The story that you're a part of is bigger than you. And that he was going to use Moses and all of his people to be a blessing to the world. So we can, we can establish that Moses was a child of God, a, a, 
an appropriate reaction would be, well, what's the point of knowing that you're a child of God if you don't know who this God is? So we can ask, and I think that's the second thing that Moses learns. Moses learned who God was. And God, in this moment of revealing himself, was a God of promise. Now, the amazing thing is, a lot of us, when we think of Moses, we think of these, this, this Charlton Heston dude with the long beard holding the big stone tablets. We think Moses is the guy who brought the law. Even when we were just literally talking about the Ten Commandments earlier, we think Moses is the guy who brought all of the rules. He brought the big holy rule book down to the people of Israel. So God, at this very moment, could have said, all right, Moses, you and I, we're going to be partners, but here's a list of things you need to do to clean up your life. God could have easily said, hey, uh, let me tell you how I feel about that guy that you murdered a few years ago. He could have easily come in and convicted him with the law. But how God initiated this conversation, how God initiated his relationship with Moses was by saying, I've heard the cries of your people, and this is what I'm going to do. This is my promise for you and for your people, Moses. He's going to compel Moses to act. That's going to come later. But at the beginning of the relationship with God, it was God saying, here's what I'm going to do for you and your people. Here is the plan of redemption that I have, that I'm going to unfold. God is saying as clearly as he can, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. I have heard your people. I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to rescue you too, Moses. It's pivotal to understand that at the very beginning of their relationship, God was not presenting himself as a figure of to-dos. He was presenting himself as a God of promise, and it was a promise of deliverance. Finally, Moses learned that for him to be who he was in response to who God is, he needed to follow him. Now, I think the order of these things is crucial. We can easily fall into this trap of like, I have to do these things for God so that God can, uh, so that I can be a child of God, so that God would look kindly on me, so that all these things would work well for my life. We turn God into the vending machine where we put good works in and hope that blessings and favor come out of it. But in reality, God was saying, look, you are a child of God. And, I, and we can say confidently here to anyone who's putting faith in, in Jesus, whether it's the, 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 the hundredth day or the, or the tenth year or whether today is the very first time you've done this, we can say the person who puts faith in God is a child of God. And you've received all of his promises right off the bat. Before you've done a single good thing for him, that promise is already yours. It's not that we do good things in order to be loved by God, but it's that because we are loved by God, we can respond to him in ways that are good. 
The promise of God means more to our identity than the actions that we take in response. And yet, our actions are a result of living into that promise. If that sounds kind of burdensome, and I think that it can be, I want to consider this perspective. The, The fact that Moses was willing to follow God into the place where he was called wasn't just an obligation. I would even argue it was an opportunity of healing for Moses. Moses had this this mentality of feeling like he did not belong. And not, not only that, remember, Moses saw what was happening to his people in Egypt. He knew how brutally his people were being beaten and bloodied and taken advantage of. And his response when he felt this strong angst of justice was to act. But he didn't do anything. He killed an Egyptian and buried him in the desert. He didn't free a slave. He didn't gather an uprising. For all intents and purposes, Moses was a failure for what he had done. So he was a man who didn't belong, a foreigner in a foreign land with blood on his hands and failure in his heart. And God wasn't just saying, do this thing for me because you're my pawn. God was saying, by you following me, I'm going to heal the brokenness that is in your heart. By you following me, I'm going to show you what it truly means to act in justice, not by bloodying your hands with an Egyptian guard, but by trusting in a God who has promised to do what he said he would do. So it's important to look and see the life of Moses was full of mercy from beginning to end. I mean, just think of the things that we talked about. At at the very beginning of his life, Moses, instead of being thrown into a river, was spared of death as an infant. Because he was raised with the Egyptians, he was spared slavery. He even avoided punishment after committing murder. Moses' life was full of mercy already. And God was giving him an opportunity to say, Moses, I have had mercy on you since the day that you were born. You are called by me. You are loved by me. You are my child from the beginning. But now I'm going to use you to bring mercy to the rest of your people as well. And that's honestly a perfect example of how we should respond to to faith. That's that's how we should live our lives as believers, is we are people who have received great mercy. And so rather than hoarding it for ourselves, we live a life of gratitude, and then we share it with others. That's That's how I think we're called. Here's kind of how I want to close. I think one of my favorite things about the story of Moses is actually the very end of it. A lot of things would happen. He would 
lead the Israelites out of slavery. He would talk to God. He and God would have this really beautiful, intimate relationship that we don't really see with anyone aside from, you know, Jesus and the other, and and Jesus himself. He would bring the law. He would carry down the Ten Commandments, and he would try to serve his people faithfully. But Moses was far from a perfect leader. Even into his old age, he struggled with that same rage and anger that he felt as a young man. He would sometimes let that rage and anger get the better of him, and it would compromise his ability to lead his people and advocate for God. And so as a result, God would punish Moses and say, I'm going to lead your people into the promised land, this land of flowing milk and honey, but I'm going to lead them without you, Moses. You don't get to come in. For all of his hard work, it seems like once again, Moses had failed. The land that he had heard about decades and decades ago, when he was still a young man, a young sheep herder, was a land that he would never step foot in. When Moses was close to dying, God told him to climb to the top of this mountain that oversaw the promised land where he could see the stretch of borders that existed, all the places, the the, the rolling hills and the beautiful fertile land that his people would inhabit for generations. It's easy to see as that is like God kind of pouring salt in the wound. But I don't think it was. I think it's important to recognize that Moses was barred from this place. But I also don't think we would see it as a lack or an absence of the mercy that he'd seen his whole life. Going into the promised land was not going to be an easy process for the people of God. There was going to be war and there was going to be violence. And Moses was 100 years old. He was an old man. Maybe this wasn't his calling to lead his people into the promised land. And we have to remember the beauty of the promised land that God was leading his people into was not just the milk and the honey and the fertile land and the the cattle and, and everything else. The beauty of it was that this was the place that God was going to dwell with them. It was important because it's where God would be. And so it's easy to look at this story of Moses, especially as it closes, and think that God, like, God limited Moses because he was a failure and didn't get to see what he saw. But in reality, Moses would sit on the top of that mountain overseeing the promised land, thinking and talking with the God that he loved. And when he closed his eyes for the last time, he would open them in the beautiful presence of God in the life that is waiting for each of us. And so I think it's beautiful to think that Moses, in many ways, was never able to shake off this narrative that he lived with as, a, as, a, as an angsty, rage-filled young man, as a, as a failure who couldn't accomplish what was in, what was in front of him couldn't shake off this feeling of being a black sheep. He was very much an imperfect man from the beginning of his call to the day that he died. 
overlooking a promised land he would never step foot in. Yet, God's promise didn't float away from him. He was loved by God. He was called by God. And despite his failures, he would not lose the great promise of new life that he has made for his people. So I would say that, I don't know, (laughs) we are all struggling with some kind of internal dialogue that's going to really ache at us. Maybe it's struggling to find that feeling of belonging. Maybe it's just a struggle to be happy. Or maybe there's just a longing in your life that you feel like has been unmatched or, or, or ungiven to you. Or maybe you just feel like you just don't have the chops. You just, you're just not up for it. Like there's too many big red stains in the back of your life that are keeping you from anything valuable. Like there's so much that's affecting your view of who you are as a person that I think my only encouragement can be that if you can put that little bit of faith in God in the midst of the garbage that you struggle with, and we all do, if we can remember who we are, if we can remember who God is, and we can remember what that compels us to, God can endure your flimsy, floppy, lousy faith. There's one last thing I'll say. Something about Old Testament stories, we always love to find ourselves in it. We always want to be David. We always want to be Moses. We always want to be so-and-so. I think that if we want to find ourselves in the story of Moses, it would be the plant that he first spoke to God in. This is actually something that scholars even recognize themselves. Because that plant was burning and covered with fire, and yet it was not consumed. Covered with the pain and the weight of affliction, sin, evil, all kinds of things, and yet it was not consumed. But it wasn't unconsumed because it was special, because it was extra valuable, because it was stronger than your average plant. It was unconsumed because the presence of God dwelt right there. And so, yeah, all I can say for each of us and all I can really even say for myself is we are all burning yet not consumed, covered with pain and struggle, yet filled with the perfect presence of God that will keep us safe and secure until the day that he comes to free us from slavery. So, if you pray with me, please. Lord, I, uh, I thank you that you are a God of promise. I thank you that you are um, so gracious <laughs> and good, that you are so, so sweet to us, that, uh, that we can't imagine it. Like, if our, if our parents were perfect, they could only be a tiny glimpse of who you are and that you treasure and you care for us. 
such a wonderful thing to know that we all have the perfect love and care of a good father. And not just a father who just wishes good things from a distance, but one who has promised to come in at the right time and make everything good. That you would lift us from the place of burden that we feel. We know that you will. So in the meantime, God, would you give us the heart and the posture of Moses? Will we recognize that even in the pain that we feel, we've received mercy upon mercy throughout our lives? And would you share with us how we can share that mercy with the people around us? We have been blessed. We have been cared for. So may we bless those around us. May we care for those around us. Through our love for you and through our love for others, would you please heal us of the pain that we feel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.